Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. It gives you background to the semantic memory stuff. The stuff we'll talk about about semantic memory today when we get there is about mathematical and computer models of semantic memory. So, you know, they're complementary to each other. Uh, also, I got a report last night, I haven't checked yet because my internet's been down at home, that uh, the audio of that BBC documentary isn't working. So I'll, I'll look into that. Um, anyway, we were, when we were talking about memory, we were looking at the idea of long-term potentiation. I talked about that. Uh, it still is important in learning and memory. The question is, it's not the only one. Well, the point is, it's not the only thing. Right? Um, so that's on a cellular level. On a more macro level, what can you do? So you're going to have to measure brain activity, right? Uh, there's a lot of different ways to do imaging. Uh, most of these uh, you know about, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on them. Um, before even things like EEG, which we'll talk briefly about, which is just measuring you know, brainwave activity, uh, there were techniques like those that Penfield used. And what Penfield, of course, did was when people, as I mentioned, when people had their uh, heads open, when he was doing uh, brain surgery, he would brought around and he was doing that to find where a tumor was. That was the point of what he was doing. Um, and sometimes he would memories would show up. Usually when he was stimulating somewhere in cortex, uh, the memory would come flooding back to the patient. This didn't happen a great deal of Penfield stuff. A lot more was made of it than I think Penfield did, though I think the consensus pretty much is that Penfield probably got a little bit more of it than he should have. Though it was pretty striking. There's the case of a woman suddenly remembering, you know, a middle-aged woman suddenly remembering with great detail her fourth birthday. Which is a, you know, a pretty striking thing. So you can see why he would be pretty uh, amazed by this. So no problem. But I mean, this wasn't really done for research purposes. He was doing this, for the most part, to find out where tumors were. Right? So, you know, neurosurgeons were a little busy what with them, you know, doing brain operations at the time. They weren't actually doing this for the point, usually, of, of, of research. They were doing this because they had to find out where a tumor was, and they didn't have the imaging techniques that we have today to just take a look and find a tumor. Um, the easiest, the oldest form of brain imaging, something you could actually, you could make a crude one yourself, you know, with parts of Radio Shack kind of thing, or whatever they call Radio Shack. Um, and that's just the EEG. This is very complicated, the EEG that this person has on. But you can actually just put on six or eight uh, sensors, and all they do is they detect changes in current. Uh, and it's completely non-invasive. Uh, it's not unpleasant at all. You just take uh, electrolytic gel and just put it on your person's scalp, different places, and you measure the uh, changes in, in Connectivity. It's, it's uh, not uh, sort of the changes in, in current. It's really not a, a problem. The cool thing about this is this is allowing us today to do things like, for example, uh, 
I know that Dr. George Townsend in our computer science department is doing stuff where he's doing brain computer interface stuff. And this is mostly what we're talking about here with the EEG. One of the big applications now is having people, for example, control a computer with their brain. This is not a difficult thing to do. Theoretically, I'm not saying what George does is easy. Right? But what they're doing now is they're actually being able to say control a, a cursor on a computer screen. Uh, control an artificial limb. Control a wheelchair. Control a speech synthesis machine. That kind of thing. That's what's coming. Uh, a friend of mine, Justin Sanchez, who's in Florida, is working on this. And in fact, he's trying to do it using implants. So what you actually have is underneath the skin in your head, you have little implants. And what they then allow you to do, for example, is so let's say control a wheelchair. Let's say to control an artificial limb. And then you actually have a battery in there that runs everything. Um, and then the person doesn't have to actually wear the EEG. Right? Well, obviously, this is for someone who's physically disabled somehow. So this is pretty exciting. Not used a great deal for memory stuff, uh, but it is a way, a simple way to detect brain uh, activity. The CAT scan, computerized axotomography. Again, not used too much in brain stuff. What the CAT scan is, in essence, is a three-dimensional x-ray. That's a very pretty picture of the inside of the brain. That's a very, very pretty picture. Um, we might use this if we see someone has a problem, a memory problem. We'll talk about disorders later in the course. This allows us to see function, uh, sorry, form, not function. Now, positron emission tomography, on the other hand, the PET scan, this is something that is used quite a bit in um, memory research. Because the nice thing is, PET scanning, um, the machines themselves aren't prohibitively expensive, such that, say, hospitals don't have it. So a big hospital would have it, and then a researcher books time to use it. And what you do is a person drinks uh, a radioactive, um, usually radioactive glucose solution of some sort, um, which is horribly dangerous. It's no more dangerous than having an x-ray. Okay, you don't do it every day, but every so often, it's not a big deal. Um, and then glucose uptake is then detected. And remember, your brain needs a lot of glucose to run, right? Most of your, a good chunk of, of, of the sugar that you convert into ATP to run your body is being done to run your brain. So what happens then is the computer then says, where is most of the glucose being taken up? It can detect this because of the radioactivity from the glucose. Uh, and then where there's the most activity, you get a hotter color the least activity get a cooler color. The reason you have an arrow pointed here is you can see that this is all symmetrical, and then there, and then it's not there. This could actually tell us there's something wrong with this person. This actually looks like, to me, probably just a person at rest, thinking just about anything. And there's something going on here, because that should be symmetrical. You should get that, just like you get this here. But what you can do then is you can actually say, for example, give a person a list of words and then have them recall them, and you can see if the activation when they heard the word looks the same as the activation when they remember the word. And it actually tends to. There's been a great deal of, of work done with this. Uh, if you had someone 
recalling a second language, you would have a different part of their brain light up if you were recalling words from their first language, things like that. So there's also all that kind of stuff you can see. The fMRI, uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging, allows us to see form and function in almost real time. There's about a five second lag. So you're not actually seeing it in real time. And the computer power that's needed here is pretty big because, in fact, the thing has to constantly be measuring uh, changes. Uh, well, basically, what it's doing is it's measuring when uh, cells are active. So what it's got to do is it's got to measure this for functional magnetic resonance imaging um, and be outputting a picture and analyzing it. The cool thing is we're getting to the point now where the uh, resolution's getting better and better. It's just like you know, video, right? Like, you know how we went from standard definition to high definition, and then wait 10 years and we'll all have 4K TVs, which are even more realistic looking. Um, the same sort of thing's happening with, MR with fMRI. What's going on there is that the resolution's getting better and better because the computing power's getting better and better. Mostly that's driven by computer power at this point. Um, it's to the point now where you can look at occipital lobe back in your brain and you can actually look at what somebody's looking at, okay? And so you have to look at a stimulus. And we know how uh, vision is coded in occipital lobe. It's something we know. You've taken brain behavior, you know this section's very cool. So if we can read the state of all these cells in the letters of occipital lobe, we should be able to reconstruct what someone's seeing. And in fact, that's now been done. It's been done in very little resolution, about 10 pixels by 10 pixels. But the person, uh, the subjects were actually shown a word, and then the researchers, well, the software, detected what word they were seeing and knew what word it was. And the word, cool, you know, it was neuron. <laughs> why not? Something cool. Um, why is this interesting? Well, if we can get if we can basically detect pictures in occipital lobe, we should be able to, when people are recalling things and they, they see images, we should be able to see what they, they see in their mind's eye. We know that when someone's asleep and they are dreaming and they see images in dreams, right? That occipital lobe lights up just like if you're awake. So if you're imagining something, and we also know, for example, that when you imagine something, you actually use the same part of your brain as if you were seeing it. You're still using occipital. Well, if someone's imagining a memory, we should be able to see it and detect it. So this is going to get us better and better understanding of, say, visual memory. Um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, is that, doesn't that justify consciousness to a certain... How so? If, are we not creating something within our brain? We were taking a perception of something <coughs> in the sense of memory. Yeah. But are we not creating that out of nothing? Isn't that. Oh, sure, you're creating it out of nothing. Yeah. And we're able to perceive that and then act on its behalf. Yeah. Is that not the basis of. I mean, I, I know it's a, it's a very watered down version of it. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I think that if, if you wanted to find it, the consciousness that way, I think that's fine. I mean, in that case, though, then you'd have to also say that bees are conscious. Because we know that bees match up, when a bee is looking for um, the entrance to its hive, it matches up. These are complicated experiments. Take animal behavior next year, we're all about it. But 
Um, when a bee is finding the entrance to its hive, it matches up what it has on its retina with what it has in memory. It's, a match, it's basically matching up what the pictures look like exactly. So if that's the case, and the, the experiment's complicated beyond the scope of today, but yeah. take my word. And at that point, then, we'd have to say that the bee's acting on, it is, acting on a, a, an image it has, and if that's the case, the bees are conscious. And I don't think bees are conscious. Um, maybe they are. Is that going to see that guy? going to give up my life for the high. Because they, they think in English, but they say zzz a lot. And most people don't know that. About these. So, I mean, I see what you're saying, though. And I mean, I think a lot of this imaging stuff will be the sort of, might be the, the, the thing that brings us the holy grail of consciousness. I really think it might be. Um, we do know, for example, where self awareness is in the brain, it's right there. Like, we know where it is. We take that away, and people don't know that what they're doing is them doing it. For example, so I mean, well, everybody's going to be taken away. People have operations that, you know, it's not like we're doing that. That's usually the bump on the head. <laughs> it's not like people come, come to the lab for a while. No, you'll be fine. I'll give you 20 bucks. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's an experiment in nature. But yeah, so I mean, I think it will lead to that someday. I think that's this and. So imaging and also understanding things at the cellular level will help us understand things at the macro level, which will help us answer these really huge questions. Right? But we still don't know how the, the holy grail of, of like cognitive neuroscience is the binding problem and how we put all memories and uh, self-awareness and also everything which is around us together into one thing we call an experience. And it doesn't feel like 27,000 different things at once, which is what it is but we feel like it's one thing, I think that will solve that too eventually. It's an exciting time in cognitive neuroscience. Danny. Wouldn't though the images that you, these reconstructed images that yeah. one person seeing, yeah. wouldn't they still be considered subjective? Because of course. I can confabulate. Of course. Oh yeah, I can, I can I just imagine the sky's purple. I'm just doing it right now. Yeah, and if you looked at the, if I did it with my eyes closed, uh, and you could read the, 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 the contents of occipital lobe, you'd actually see that. It, it, we don't have that kind of detail yet. But it's getting better. It's, it's gone from 10 by 10 to up to like 100 by 100 pixels now. So, so then how would you be able to distinguish? Uh, that's the next question, right? So what you have to be able to do is somehow, and I think imaging will help us with this, show a person an image and then have them imagine the image. It's going to look the same in occipital lobe. It doesn't look the same everywhere else. The question is you've got to look everywhere else. <laughs> and that, that's kind of hard. You know, you can't just go on a fishing expedition. There's a lot of activity going on right there. There's 10 to the 14th neurons up there. There's a lot of stuff going on. So we can make some guesses. And this is where things like animal studies come in. This is where we look at things in the limbic system, things like hippocampus, et cetera. I mean, the best guess I've heard about how memories are stored is that it's a pattern of activation that looks just like the, as close as possible to the pattern of activation that happened when the person was experiencing the thing. So, and this is something, uh, there has been some success in detecting false memories by looking at PET scans and showing that remembering real memories show patterns of activation that are uh, sort of hyper-specific for that thing, whereas patterns of activation for False memories seem to be using a lot more brain power. You're confabulating stuff, right? Um, 
again, we're not to the point where we can do that in a you know court of law, and I hope we never get there because even if we do, we shouldn't be using it in court. That's a whole other matter, you know. But um, yeah, I mean, it's exciting stuff. It's exciting stuff, and I mean, MRI. The beautiful thing about MRI is it's completely. You can lie in there all day. I, I don't think it's very comfortable because it's a tube you're lying in, but. Unlike a PET scan or a CAT scan, those things use radiation. What we're using here is really powerful magnets. And that's basically it. It's harmless. Right? You don't want to be in there for a long time more than anything just because you end up, it's uncomfortable. It's unpleasant for the subject. It's loud. And they're loud, yeah. It's loud. And you've got to take out your earrings and your rings and take your glasses off or your earrings would be ripped right out of your ears. However, if you have tattoos, they will not hurt you. There's this whole notion out there because there's uh, iron-based inks in tattoos that it'll... No, that's not true. In fact, watch the episode of Mythbusters about that. It's available on U.S. Netflix, which you can get by using an American proxy. Um, so this is exciting stuff, and the, the cool thing is once we get to the point where we can see images, which we're getting at, and like I said, it starts with 10 by 10. I've now got, I think, 100 by 100 pixels. <coughs> and this, they, they've been saying, the authors are saying this in these papers, next is video. Right? I want to see video. So you get somebody in an MRI, and I want them to close their eyes and imagine something, and now we can watch the movie. Right? Or imagine if you could fall asleep in there, and you could just record your dreams. Yeah. And then you upload the dream tube, and people comment on it. First comment is always first. Right? First, and the first four comments say first, and then there's someone that says Obama is from Kenya. Uh, then there's four or five racist comments. Uh, and then there's one smart guy trying to say, no, will you people get back on track? And everybody else says, you're a fag. So it's, 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 that's, no, we've all read these comments. That's what they're like. That's the least offensive thing anybody says on YouTube, right? Why are there comments anywhere? I hate, where's my comments on news stories? I don't care. I just read the New York Times. I don't need Joe Smith's opinion on it. It's the freaking New York Times. So when I try to combine this with behavioral stuff, as I'm just talking about this is easy to do if it's expensive. I mean, renting time ain't cheap. First of all, you've got to find a, a, a hospital, and it will usually be a big teaching hospital, that will allow you to pay for them to, have, to use the MRI, and they usually are pretty busy because, you know, what with it being used to heal the sick? <laughs> so you put the subject on the MRI, right? or a PET scanner. PET scanner is a little easier to do. It's, it's a little cheaper, right? Uh, you scan them. Have, uh, have a person read a passage, do a distractor task, and I think that should be an O, distractor. Um, typical distractor tasks we use in, in memory experiments, you know, just uh, once there's the study phase, you just, you don't want people keeping it short-term memory, right? You don't want people repeating it for themselves. So what you do is you tell people, we're also interested in your geographic knowledge. Here's a map of the world, label all the countries. People take that exceedingly seriously, partially because they think it reflects in their intelligence. Which it kind of does. And at least I think it does. Or you get a, my, my other favorite one, I've used that, 
My other favorite one they use is, now I'd like you to count backwards out loud from 10,000 by 17, please. You'll go, okay, 10,000, 9,983, nine, and that, that's it, it's all gone from short term memory. Beautiful, right? So you distract them, watch the right hemisphere light on fire, and then scan again, have them remember the passage while you're scanning. That's in essence, that, that's the technique here. This is the method that's used in sort of cognitive neuroscience of memory using sort of scanning techniques. But I mean, methodologically it's easy. It is expensive work to do. And for a PET scan you're going to need, um, this is going to be harder for that to pass through ethics because people basically in essence are, they're giving themselves a very small dose of radiation. For MRI, it's a little easier to get through. But again, the ethics thing are big there because you have to lie inside a tube. And people don't like MRIs, most people don't find fun. Right? But I mean, most of the work, anybody, I think a couple of you guys have already talked about doing stuff like this for your paper. You'll see that this is the technique. Um, some selected results about memory and the sort of physiological basis thereof. Um, we know, for example, habituation is, is responding less to a discreetly presented stimulus. This is the simplest form of learning. It shows up in every animal that's ever been tested. Responding less to what? To a discreetly presented stimulus. So the first time I do that, you startle. The next time, you start a less, and eventually, you just get used to it. But it's not just getting used to it like sensory adaptation. It's actually, you still, the, the stimulus is still there. You just don't respond anymore. We tend to measure this with an orienting or a startle response. It's exceedingly simple. An aplysia has 2,000 neurons. It's a simple animal. And we see if they withdraw their gill when we poke at them. It's, and you, you flush them down the toilet when you're done. I mean, there are 2,000 neurons. There's nothing there. Um, basically what's been found is that this happens at the neural level. There is a decrease in release of transmitter by a sensory neuron. This, the neuron itself is doing the learning. Right? And this also happens in cats, so it's not just us, it's also, I'm sorry, not just the plesia, it's very simple. The same mechanism is in cats, we can probably assume pretty safely it's the same mechanism in humans. Why we care about this in something as high, you know, higher order cognition like human memory? Well, this is the universal learning paradigm habituation, and it does show all the same characteristics that all other kinds of memory show. There's a forgetting curve. Uh, there's savings. It's everything that Ebbinghaus found, in, in essence, shows up in, in, in habituation techniques with, with any animal. <coughs> uh, Kendall won the Nobel Prize for this. So, I mean, it, it's kind of a big thing. So, that's cool because it shows us it can be at the neural level, at the individual neuron level, which we would imagine. Um, we know there are feature detectors in the brain. Uh, this is another Nobel Prize, a Hugo and Weasel detecting um, light orientations in cats in cortex. So, we know, for example, that. Remember when I, I drew up that sort of network the other day of different line orientations? 
Well, we know those exist, those individual cells, for detecting um, lines. When those things network together, we can get face detectors. We're pretty sure humans have these. Uh, this is hard to do because you can't do single cell recording of people. You can't drill a hole in someone. You can. You may not drill a hole in someone's head and put a microelectrode across their uh, across the cell. But you can do it to monkeys, and we know that individual monkeys have individual cells that respond only to certain monkeys. Right. So because of that, we can be. We can be pretty sure that we have the same system. We know we have a specialized face recognition system um, in our brains. And it probably works the same way if there's individual cells. So if you're remembering your grandmother, you're remembering the characteristics, perhaps, all the characteristics of your grandma, and all when all those cells fire and they're all synapsing onto what's called the grandmother cell, you remember grandma. Right? And it's funny, because the idea of the grandmother cell was put forward as a silly idea. When people first started talking about networking, which is what we'll talk about when we start talking about synthetic memory layers that. And it was put forward as a, this, this facetious idea. Oh, yeah, like you've got a grandmother cell? And it's like, yeah, we probably do, actually. Um, and it's basically a pattern of activation of cells that's detected by another cell, which would be your grandmother cell. Now, it's, it's going to be redundant. There's going to be lots of cells. You couldn't just find that one cell removed and you don't know who your grandma is. Right? It's not quite that. But, so detecting patterns of activation. Okay? So we know that this, and in fact, most of this work um, was done by David Parrott, who's an amazing uh, cognitive neuroscientist uh, from, from Scotland. I don't know from England, but he lives in Scotland. He's at St. Andrews University. Yeah, he's the guy that I told one of you guys about that had the, one of the first talks I ever saw that made me want to be a scientist because he had a came in and he had a, in a mohawk, a purple mohawk up to here. No, a green mohawk and wore purple pants and motorcycle boots up to his knees and a black leather jacket. He talked like this. He talked about some single cell recording and some monkeys. And it's like, this is the coolest thing ever. Look, there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no dress code in this job. I love it. I'm never going to have to buy a tie or learn how to tie one. And I still haven't done either of those things. So we know, we know there are place cells in hippocampus in rats. When a rat is put on, let's say, a Morris water maze, the one we were talking about the other day, um, where he's swimming around in the maze. Right? And he's got up on the platform. We put him in the maze, and we know that Individual cells fire when the animal is in certain positions in the space. And we know when they're remembering to get there, those cells fire. There are these things called state, uh, place cells. That was discovered by O'Keefe and Nadell, written up in their book, uh, The Hippocampus as a Cognitive Map. The neat thing about that is that book, they got the copyright back, and they just released it free and online. So if you, you can get it anywhere totally for free. Um, totally legal for free, too. Because as a torrent, it doesn't have a lot of seeders. It's a little joke. You wouldn't have a lot of people seeding that thing because of the being about hippocampus and cognitive maps. It's not like the most recent episode of Homeland. 
From what I'm told, I don't know anything about BitTorrent. <laughs> yeah, Penny, you have a question. Are the same cells firing when they're remembering the place they were in? Yeah, that's the cool thing about it. Yeah. Well, that's not the only cool thing. It's cool that it's. I mean, they said then that the hippocampus was a cognitive map. That's a little bit much. Uh, but it's important work, the idea that we actually have. We can then assume that we have them too. It seems a pretty reasonable assumption. Would, would they also be firing different cells though? Because doesn't it take a different mechanism to remember <coughs> opposed to learning it? Um, but the, there are cells that will fire when they're in a specific place. That's the important thing. Or when they're remembering to get to that specific place. And it, makes you, it gives you this idea that what they're doing is they're activating a map. And we talked about cognitive maps uh, to learning. Like we talked about cognitive maps, and that in essence probably is what's going on. But that's not all hippocampus does. Right. And early on in the '70s, when people started looking into hippocampus a lot and spatial stuff, people thought that hippocampus, well, like they said, hippocampus is a cognitive map. They, they, people thought that was the only really big thing it did. It seems to be doing more than that, right? But the biggest thing I think that a non-human does. As far as cognitive complexity, probably is cognitive mapping. I mean, the, the average non-human, the, 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 you know, I'm not saying all of them. Uh, and of course, you know the stories of HM and KC, and HM, of course, had his uh, hippocampus removed and couldn't form any new episodic memories. Uh, KC has rather massive temporal damage, including hippocampus. Um, and he can't, no, he, it's not only that he can't form new episodic memories, he doesn't have any, his episodic memory is gone. It's not accessible anymore. Okay. Is yeah. that the guy with the uh, pole in his head? No, that's, that's, uh, that's Phineas Gage. No, Casey's a guy that had a car, a motorcycle accident. Okay. And he was thrown about 30 feet from his motorcycle when he had the accident, and he wasn't wearing a helmet. Okay. And that'll hurt. Like, that'll hurt bad. And the poor guy, he's probably, he may be pushing 60. Maybe he's still alive. Oh, yeah, yeah, he, he, he recovered. He recovered. Um, you know, he, uh, I'll tell you, if, if he's from Toronto. If you're going to get brain, uh, brain damage, getting brain damage in Toronto is a good idea. <laughs> no, I mean, because there's really good people there. It's like getting brain damage in Montreal. There's really good people there. They know what they're doing. Um, and... He recovered, but he now has no episodic memories that are accessible at all. It's not like each of them still had his old episodic memories. KCs are gone. Well, they're probably still there. He just can't access them. So you can ask KC questions, and he knows who people are. He recognizes his family. He recognizes his mom. Um, he can remember how to do certain tasks. So, for example, uh, he used to play with engines, sticker with engines, and he knows how to change spark plugs in a 1972 Volkswagen Beetle. So, to say he has procedural memory? Oh, yeah, he's got procedural memory. He can actually learn new procedural tasks and learn new uh, semantic knowledge about the world. He just never remembers learning it. So, it, there's a great paper that Toby and his colleagues did with Casey where they actually had him, they, they taught him new associations. Uh, they showed him a picture, and then they would associate that picture with something that there's no way it was ever associated with. So, you know, a picture of a canoe, and uh, I think it was a couple of nice canoeing, and oh, and I think the word they associated with that was assassin. Uh, 
Uh, Toby always uses the word assassin. I don't know why. Um, just it's a thing he likes to say. So then six months later, he was shown, and they said, well, look, Casey, what we want you to do, we're going to show you some pictures. We'd just like you to say the first thing that comes to mind. And he remembered some of these old associations from six months earlier. Which is what would happen with you as well, except that you'd remember doing it. Right? He didn't. And he also doesn't have any episodic memory. So when you ask him about, say, how to change the plugs in a 72 Beetle, he'll tell you how. Most people, if you said, why do you know that? You'd say, you'd know something about yourself. Right? You would say, well, this is something that I, I tinker with engines. It's kind of a fun thing I do. I like to play with uh, mechanical things. And uh, yeah, that's part of who I am. And he says, his response typically is, doesn't everyone know how to do that? So his idea is that, and again, his brain's confabulating. It's like, well, I don't know why I know this. It's like if I said to you, how do you know how to write words? You'd say, well, that's just a thing people know. You know how do you know your colors? Well, because people know their colors. So how do you know how to change the plugs in a 72 Beetle? Well, you know, that's just a thing people know. Right? So poor guy, he's, you know, and he actually does show some real blunted affect now um, over the years because, frankly, that makes some sense. I mean, most of our, when you think about emotions, you can make yourself happy and sad by remembering good and bad things. He can't. He can't. It's a sad thing. And the thing is, his family have been very cooperative with Tolkien and his group uh, and others in the team. Because what they've done is they've said the only good thing that can come of this stupid accident he was in is that we can learn some stuff about memory. So, um, yeah, he's like he, he actually gets invited to parties and stuff like that at Tolving's house when he has like get-togethers with his graduate students. You know, uh, he doesn't know why he's there. <laughs> no, he really doesn't. He has no idea, and he doesn't know who the people are. He may have worked with them 30, 50, 100 times, but at least you know to appreciate the guy. You know, uh, and he lives in Toronto. Pardon me? No, they're very respectful to the guy. Seriously, you'd be amazed how uh, he's treated exceedingly well. Because partly out of just respect for the fact that the guy has been pretty great brain damage, but also people of people's careers have been built on this guy's misfortune. You know, and his family understand that. He also, like you know, they'll say no, no, not today. He doesn't. I don't think he should come in today. He's not having a good day. So I mean, it's a really sort of good relationship between the family and the, 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 the research group, the memory research group at U of T uh, at Baycrest Hospital. Like, they're really cool. I mean, it's not, they're pretty cool with the guy. And he's actually, he's a decent guy. You know, you can talk to him. You can have a conversation with him. Um, he has some awareness that there's something going on. Like, he's learned, again, that's semantic, that's knowledge about the world. He's learned he has a problem. And uh, one of Toby's students told me that when you ask Casey, I mean, I've met him, but I never did any work with him. But when you ask Casey a question like, I just need to say, well, I gave you a list of words five minutes ago, and she's like, could you recall them, please? And he always looks at people, very often looks at people and says, you know I don't know, but I can guess. So he's aware that there's something going on. Because he's learned it over time. And he has the same reaction that H.M. had to Brenda Miller when he sees graduate students and faculty that he's been working with for years. He often has the reaction to them. We've met before somewhere. We go to school together. Are you on TV or something? Are you a musician? 
right? He recognized the face is like, this is someone I've seen before, but he has no idea where. And of course, the best guess, if you don't know where you've seen a face before, is it's probably the case that you've seen them, <coughs> excuse me, you've seen them somewhere. Uh, so maybe he was in school, maybe he was on TV. Would that be like a residual effect? No, I, I, Really, this is it's just semantic memory. He's just learned over time uh, to that that person exists. Your brain's doing it some way. Yeah, and I mean, just like you will recognize people that you had one class with in ten years. You walk down the street, God, that guy's familiar. Where the hell did I see that guy before? Because you, you saw him every day for, for four four months in a class. Same kind of thing, except for everyone he sees, even people he's seen hundreds and hundreds of times. That's his feeling. So you got to kind of feel for the guy, but some good has come of it, if any good can come of somebody getting hurt like that. Do you know what happens if, like, they can't remember episodic memory, they can remember semantic things in yes. this world. So what if they're tied together? Like, what if this person was married, and they remember that this is, like, not just a random woman, but this is my wife, I just don't remember marrying her. Yeah, indeed, this is my wife, and I have, it will be very difficult to have any kind of, I mean, you have emotional attachments. To oh, right. Like, nothing that it would be a functional relationship, but, like, remembering, would you remember that they were your spouse, or would you, like, but, but yeah. not marrying them, not being... Oh, yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, he knows who his mom is, but he doesn't remember Ever, like, living with her, mom. or ever being mothered. No, not at all. I mean, you feel kind of... Yeah, it's really, a, it's, it's a horrible case. H, uh, Casey is a... HM is horrible too, but he could, you can still realize that he could go back into time before his accident, uh, before his operation. Casey can't. Casey can't. But like I said, you can actually hold a conversation with Casey. Because it's all in short-term memory, he's talking to you. But he won't, he'll go back to the same subject you were talking about 45 seconds ago. He won't remember that he just said something. Right, so. Um, I would say that procedural and semantic had a lot of overlap, let's say. They're just different classification systems. Semantic is about facts about the world. Procedural is facts about the world and how to do stuff. So one of them is Edmund Tobin's idea, one of them is Larry Squire's idea. Uh, I would say that they're separate, but there's overlap. I mean, because we don't know that semantic and procedural are actually separate memory systems. No matter how much Larry Squire and the problem would tell you differently if you understand it. David? Yes? Um, how would Casey do with humor? Is, is he able to have a sense of humor? Uh, because that deals with a whole lack of... Yeah, that's interesting. I don't really know the answer to that question, but I, could, I would just speculate that if it was a short joke, you could tell Then you might find it funny if somebody... Well, then you'd always find it funny, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you've got one good joke with KC, just call it out all the time. That's your material. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but... Well, you couldn't tell a very complicated five-minute, you yeah. know, tall tale type joke, a shaggy dog story joke. You couldn't do that. Because he would be lost. Yeah. He would be lost. He's a fascinating character. I mean, there's been a lot of stuff written about him. For sure. Some conclusions about this stuff. Uh, we well, you know memories are up here somewhere. Where else could they be? We're a long way from figuring exactly where and how. Um, we 
The best guess, I think, still is something about a pattern of activation that's the same as the pattern of activation that happened when you experience the thing. Right? There's, there's no way that all human memory is stored in some little bundle of cells that big. I, I just don't see how that's possible. For the exam, um, are we going to know, or do we have to know about the pattern of activation? Well, the idea of it, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. I think you have to know everything. That's your best, <laughs> your best policy is to know all the material perfectly. Um, once we do, you'll always hear people say this, and this tend to be people that are only neuroscientists that have never done any psychology. And they'll say things like, well, then cognitive psychology will be done. And you'll say, eh, somebody still has to know how to design experiments, understand the mechanisms, not even just the neural ones, but the sort of uh, mechanistic ones as far as just the psychology goes. So there's always going to be a need for people doing this kind of stuff. But I think there's more of a need now uh, as time goes by, more and more need for people to understand some of the neuroscience. Um, and I think this is happening in all areas of psychology as time goes by. Right. Once more, proving my notion that psychology is just a branch of biology. Questions? So, let's move on to some semantic memory stuff. Before we start, this stuff's hard. And I don't want you to get too bogged down in it, ask questions, but you've got to understand that this stuff is hard. Okay, so this is what we're going to talk about is basically how semantic memory, knowledge about the world, is represented. Some guesses. So this is our memory for facts about the world. It is implicit. Right? You don't. It's usually thought of as implicit, let's say that. How do you know that the capital of Vietnam is Hanoi? You just do. Um, how was that type of information stored? See, that's what's interesting, right? The content isn't nearly as interesting as the, as the process. Now, it's all going to be about like concepts in a lot of respects, right? So one of the questions you can ask is, is there a difference between natural concepts and logical concepts? A natural concept is something like, this is what a bird looks like. A logical concept might be something like, well, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Okay. And how in the hell can we figure this guy out? Yeah, this is probably the biggest question. Because these are all interesting questions, but how are we going to figure this out? And the way we're going to figure this out is we're going to mathematically model it. There will be no math, but math will be mentioned. Um, what happens typically is you get people model this stuff using computer deliberate software. They then take the they take data, they input it to the model, the model does something to the data, then the model spits out a response, and if the response looks a whole lot like the way people respond to the same data, we figure the model is doing a good job. That's basically how mathematical modeling works. Right? 
Is it explaining a lot of the variance? Yes, then it's probably doing a good job. It's probably right. There's going to be some times we're going to look, we're going to be comparing, constantly comparing what humans do to what your model does. Okay. So the first one we'll talk about is the TLC, which isn't anything to do with honey boo boo and <laughs> makeovers and such. It's the teachable language comprehension. This was originally designed as a way to model human language learning. But if we think of semantic memory as a series of statements, a series of propositions, that is a table. Tables have legs, right? That's kind of how we figure semantic memory is stored. We think that it's propositions. And if that's the case, something that deals with language should do a pretty good job here. So this is a hierarchical associative network of concepts. So when I say a hierarchical network, you would have at the top of the hierarchy inanimate objects, and below that furniture, and below that tables, right? So everything below something is a member of the category above it, and things below it are, exempt, uh, are examples or exemplars of the thing above. This is a piece of furniture. This is an inanimate object. Right? And then we go below it. This is a table. I don't know what goes below table. Whatever the hell it's being. Okay. So you go like living things, animals, Birds, and then you go with uh, what about songbirds, chickadees, flat-capped chickadees. Ah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Is talking about about the associations that are like you think of black-capped chickadee, you think it has wings, and this has wings as well. So how that's not. Exactly a hierarchical network. Yeah, but this is. <laughs> See, and that's the thing. A lot of these things. Um, so just the language then would be hierarchical? Yes. Okay, what do you think of the actual like, concept of a bird? Not like yes. birds as people. Or just what birds are, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you got to remember <laughs> that this is a model of how it works, not how it might actually work. And that's trying to keep that, those two things straight is probably the hardest thing to do when I talk about this stuff. It's hard for me, so don't feel bad. Um, the background of this, this is uh, Quinlan and his colleagues. They tried to make a computer program that would simulate how a person uses and learns language. So concepts were the building blocks of knowledge, not words. That's a pretty cool realization, right? That it's not about words per se, but it's about concepts, things that words represent. Okay, here's an example that they would give to the model, not to a human. Okay? You gotta remember a lot of times when I say, and then this happened, and I'll tell you when, it's the model replying. 
and we look at how the model stores the concept. We don't look at how the human stores it. We look at how the human responds. So in, he says quite a while ago, 1973, Collins and Quinlan, one of the examples in their paper is the policeman held up his hand and the car stopped. Take a look at that sentence. There's a lot of ways to take it that are ridiculous. The policeman held up his hand and the car stopped. That's not what we mean. I didn't have to, there's a reason there's no comma there. I, I did that on purpose, there's no comma there. We don't have to have a comma there. We know that we say the policeman held up his hand and the car stopped. That I don't mean that his hand stopped. That he held up and then his hand and the car stopped. We know that I mean he held up his hand and the car stopped. Right? So that's, those kind of ambiguous sentences are often used with, some, with, with these kind of models. Because we know when I give that to a human, what does that mean? You tell me what it means. When I ask the model what it means, we see if the model says what it means. If they agree, maybe the model's on to something. Okay? Make sense? Okay. So, you know what that phrase entails. You know exactly what it means. It's a cop directing traffic. So if I was to ask you a question, ask you, not a model, what's, the, what's this thing doing? It was a clock directing traffic. We know that in the cars, people are pushing pedals to start the stop. Right? Pretty cool. One sentence like that can give us, you know, in a lot of respects, a whole image of what's perhaps going on. So that's what we call tacit knowledge. We know that without it having to be told to us. When I say that the, the, the cars stopped, you know they put their brakes on. I didn't have to explain that to you. Do you know they put the brakes on by pushing a pedal? I don't know if it's the left or the right, because I don't drive. But it's one of the ones on the floor. That's all I really know. It's the one that goes this way, not the one that goes that way. Is it the left one? Okay. Well, if I ever have to drive, I just Google it. <laughs> Actually, with our new car, I think I could probably just tell it it would just drive me. It's almost there. It's almost there. I can't wait to drive those cars. Get on that Google, work a little harder. Because they're working on that. I want to be able to drive my own car. I want to drive, just get in the car and say, take me to work. It'll be awesome. And it will be awesome. So, there are three types in this model. Okay, of elements of semantic memory. Okay? Here are the three types of elements. Okay? There are units, properties, and pointers. The unit is a thing. That's the cop. That's his hand. That's the cars. Those are things. Okay, that's good. The properties are conceptual. Raising up your hand. That's not a thing. So it could be an action. But it's, it's more conceptual. And the pointers, they denote specific associations. So the idea that the cop is raising his hand and the car stopped, those two things going together, that's a pointer. 
if you know really low, uh, sort of low-level computer programming, you've heard the root pointer before. So what this model does then is it puts these things together and tries to determine how we represent phrases. Because remember, it's actually not designed originally to deal with semantic memory. It's designed how we represent and learn language. Okay. So questions so far? Okay. So what's in this? Yes, the question. It says that semantic memory then is a huge hierarchical network of relationships between elements. So when I talk about a policeman, that element is activated. His hand is activated. The car is activated. And then the pointer of he puts his hand up is activated. So this is obviously a rather large network. And it's, it's rigidly hierarchical. Which is interesting because the cop itself is hierarchical. Of course. Of the authority that it has. To well, yeah, you can think of it that way. But because uh, you can also represent things that way. So the cop is represented as being a person. But he's also going to be represented as an authority. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that would be in there too. But I think the model doesn't get that. So basically what it is is statements that are relationships between a superordinate element and a subordinate element. Superordinates above, subordinates below. So the cop has a hand. The hand is below the cop. Well, it must be, because cops have hands. But not all hands have cops. <laughs> no, seriously, think of it that way. you got to think of it that way. So you know which one is the subordinate. It's the one that is a characteristic of the one above it. But one, you know what I'm saying? So like, not all hands are attached to cops. OK, so now we have a relation to these two. What's that? They're also attached to firemen. Sure. <laughs> or, or just, you know, people, professors, students. Right? So if we were to ask, do cops have hands? The model says yes. Because it looks and it says superordinate, subordinate, hand, cop. Yeah, they got, they got hands. So if we ask, is a bird a fish? It's going to not give us a yes. It's going to give us a no. Because birds and fish would be on the same level of the hierarchy, wouldn't it? So one cannot be the other. Uh, there's actually, one of the things you should notice about this also, there's no fuzziness in this at all, definitions. Right? Birds are birds and fish is fish. And that's fine. But our ambulance attendants paramedics, the model would not know what to do. Well, it would. You'd tell it one or the other, and it would reply, but it would put those on the same level. And I think if I asked a person, some of you'd say yes, some of you'd say no. Right. So you can already see the model's going to have some problems. But the nice thing is, if we ask the model as a bird or fish, as long as we've taught the model properly, it will reply no. 
Now, is a fish an animal? Yes. Is a bird an animal? Yes. Good. And we would reply the same way. So there is probably something to the TLC. So think of superordinate, subordinate elements and how they're related. So far, this should make some sense. Collins and Quinlan in 1969, you see, so the computing power these guys had, what they were getting out of the computing power they had is actually quite incredible. Because in 1969, people didn't have a lot of computers. These guys are running these on great big mainframes that literally took up a room this size and do it with punch cards. They were doing statements, a blank is a blank, just like we were talking about, and asking, it's called sentence verification. We talked about that one of the first days, of course. And all you have to do is say yes or no. The model, not the you, the model replies, and just like, it'll be like old pine, right? Lights would flash, and it'll you know, think about it and say yes or no. It's like a Star Trek computer for the original series. Working. So it's very retro. Now, in 1969, it was very high tech. The thing is, the thing's got reaction time. It's a computer program, but it has reaction time, just like you have reaction time. So if I ask you, is a bird, is a chickadee a bird? It takes you very little time to react to that. When there's more associative links between two things, the reaction time was longer. That seems ass backwards to me. If there's more associative length, shouldn't it be shorter? Oh yeah, but shouldn't it be shorter? Because when I ask you, is a bird, sorry, is a robin a bird compared to is an ostrich a bird? It takes you, it's not a lot longer, but it takes you longer to apply than an ostrich is a bird. It takes TLC exactly the wrong way. Now, the neat thing is, we can toy with this, and if we have less relevant property relationships, we get a longer reaction time. So, a canary is a canary yellow. That takes longer than a canary can, I should say, breathe. Because being yellow is less important to being a canary than being able to breathe, because it's an animal. But, people actually do the opposite here. People respond to as a canary yellow more quickly than it is a canary, a canary brief. Even though a more important characteristic of a bird is that it can breathe because it's alive, that it's yellow. So it's like, oh. You're right, it's taking more processing time. I get that. But that's not how actually the data in humans show up. So the yeah. model then gives you opposite. Sometimes it gives you opposite answers. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, sometimes it does, and that's probably because it's it's, it's looking at. It's not human. That's not the only. It's because the model's wrong. The model's not actually set up properly. It's it's getting there, right? The idea of superordinate and subordinate brain. It's when it gets to characteristics that it has a problem, basically. Thank you.
by the theory, just using subordinate, subordinate, and other characteristics, we should be able, the model should say, a bear is a mammal, that should be quicker reaction time than a bear is an animal, because it's taking longer to go up to animal than it takes to go just to mammal, right? And that's not true. <laughs> the model doesn't do that, unfortunately. We do. If I asked you, is a bear a mammal, you reply more quickly than it's a bear an animal. That's just kind of neat. So what we're looking for here is something called the semantic distance effect, which is something we see now, not in models, but in well, good models, but we see in people. And that's why I ask you, is an ostrich a bird takes you longer to say yes than it does to say, is a canary a bird? That's called the semantic distance effect. Well, nobody gets it wrong, by the way. Nobody says, no, I don't think ostriches are birds. Which is yes, and we measure this in tenths of a second. It's, it's quick. But it's a reliable effect. This so it doesn't show up in TLC, and that's a shame, because actually the model is, especially considering it was done in the late 60s and early 70s, you should be kind of impressed. Okay. It doesn't deal with the typicality effect. A robin is a shark is more quickly rejected than a robin is a salmon. And that's just bizarre. Would that be because a shark is a predator and a salmon? Well, it could be. Okay. But you've not taught the model of predators. Okay. okay. So a shark must have its own category. It might, yeah. And part of this, too, you've got to understand that you teach the model, and this isn't so much with TLC, but the later models, and things happen to the, to the representations that you didn't expect to happen. They're um, emergent properties that happen. Like what? Well, you've told it stuff about the world, and it represents it, but you don't know necessarily why, because you trained it one way and you told it to store things a certain way, it still comes out differently, like the bare mammal thing. Right? That should show the effect, and it actually doesn't. Right? Now, Conrad made a neat point here. He said the typicality of the statement itself is the issue. Except that, so what he's saying is, does the statement sound like something the model would have heard before? Or with humans, is the is the typicality effect? Is that um, is it something you've heard before? I've always wondered about this because I've never heard ever that a robin is a shark or a robin is a salmon. What happens when like there's some sort of external cultural significance besides typicality? Like we as a culture kind of think about sharks way more than think about salmon. How scary they are, and they're shark weak. That has something to do with it? Like, we're sure, it yeah. sharks way more, and there's this like, extra significance that we all know what sharks are, we're all scared of them. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think about salmon at all. Like, never. Yeah. <laughs> the sharks, like, that's I the thing. Both, that I just think that they're both delicious. Yeah. Well, that is terrifying that you would eat a shark. What? Sharks delicious. That is scary. It's awesome. It doesn't bite down. It's already dead. Good point. It's like, you're going to. Well, people 
go catch it, but people have to go kill cows to eat snakes no, no, on the bottom of the earth. Yeah, but like, because we are thinking about sharks more, yeah. like, is that maybe why if you're rejecting more quickly, but we're like, oh, it could be. Got sharks kind of. Could be. But I figure if I eat the shark, I get its power. The what passes? Oh. The, the, just the fact that it's a shark that you present in the snap. Oh, no, you would, you would do those back, back and forth. Yeah. So it's an interesting model. It's not, it, it was the first one, and that's one of the things that gets people excited about it. Um, people have talked a lot about what's called feature set theory, and this is Smith, Shulman, and Rips, 1974. Concepts are stored as sets of attributes. So this is a lot more the kind of thing that I was saying, right? This is earlier on the course, like, birds have this and this and this and this and this. These are birds. So the reaction time compare, depends on comparing features of the exemplar with the stored concept. So if I was to ask you, is a dolphin a mammal, that takes you longer than I ask you, is a cat a mammal? And that's because you compare the exemplar, that's the dolphin or the cat, with the concept mammal. And I kick off uh, characteristics, right? So I go, okay, is, we tend to think of mammals being land animals, we tend to think of them, well, see, they nurse their young. Right? They're uh, not eggs. Yeah, no eggs, exactly. Live, live birth, that kind of thing. And then I ask you that about a dolphin. The problem is when I compare attributes of a dolphin, dolphins live in the water. They got fins and they look like fish. So when I compare features, a lot less overlap. I eventually make the conclusion, yeah, that's a mammal. But it takes me longer than if I ask you, is a cat a mammal? Because the features overlap. And it predicts a symbolic distance effect. Um, very similar items also have very long reaction times. So, is I think of an example here are these both are porpoises and dolphins both mammals that takes longer than are porpoises and cats both mammals? Did you ask that question on porpoise? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to put my seal of approval on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, look, I can do, do aquatic mammal jokes all... Uh, I thought I had one there. I, <laughs> I really did I am the walrus, after all. Goo-goo-goo-choo. <laughs> that, 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 that's good. That's good. That really happens with humans. Nice. Ah, uh, predicts the category size effect. Category size effect is, if I'm, um, this is a concept to a superordinate. So if it's in a really big, broad category, it's going to take me 
less time than if it's in a very specific type category. Because it's easy to get overlap. So it's going to be the category size effect says the bigger the category, the easier it is to say something's a member of that category. Yeah. Our cops, people. Yes. People's a pretty big category compared to, I don't know. It's a smaller human category, uh, smaller category of humans. Uh, no, uh, how about Americans? Our cops, Americans. That's going to take you a little longer than our cops. And you're actually going to reply no to that. But the no and yeses don't matter. Because not all cops are Americans. But all men are Socrates. Anyone get that? No? Okay. <laughs> Moving on. That sounded good, but you knew there'd be a but. <laughs> um, what are the defining features of the concept? The model, feature set theory really, doesn't really deal with that. Because, like, for example, when I ask you what a dog is, your idea of what the ultimate dog is, the most dog-like dog, the platonic sense of dogginess, we all imagine differently. You might imagine your own dog or a dog you had, or you might imagine Snoopy. <laughs> Right? So someone here is probably imagining like one of those little shih tzu dogs. You know? Horrible little yippy things. And I think of, uh, I think of beagles, because I had a beagle when I was a kid. They're both dogs. And some of you might be thinking of, I don't know, some kind of magic wolf with red eyes. <laughs> Looking at you, Campbell. But... <laughs> We all know what dogs are, though. If I said to you, is this cat a dog? We all go, no. We do it all at the same amount of reaction. Like, it would be, a, it wouldn't say the same reaction time, but the reaction time difference between a cat is a dog, a dog and is a beagle a dog, that would be a pretty, we'd be fine. The same order of uh, effect. So your idea is different than mine. But we get, get, what, GT, we get the same effects with different subjects, as I just said. It sounds so nice. And it probably has, there's probably something to it. But we don't, and this is kind of what you were saying, Emily, is that different things we've learned, it could be a cultural thing, it could be a family thing, no matter what, we're all going to have somewhat different ideas of what the fish is, the dog is, whatever. They're gonna be, we're going to think the characteristics are important or different than you and I, except we both agree what a fish is and what a dog is. But the problem is we get the same effects in everybody. And that's a problem. Because if we all have different ideas, different uh, characteristics of a concept, but we all have the same reaction times, reaction time patterns, that says that we can't all be different or it's irrelevant. And if it's irrelevant, so is the model. I like the model. Because it's easy to understand. Right? One of the things we're going to get and Collins and Loftus were two of the first people to work on this, was the idea of spreading activation. So no matter how semantic memory is stored, if it stores connections, we should get, when we activate, when we say bird, we should activate the idea of flight, which means we should recognize insects as being... Uh, 
recognize bees as being insects more quickly after we've been asked about birds because flight has been activated. It's what Tolving used to call the hot pipes effect. Something's already been used. It's going to fade away. But see, the, the, the little node of a flight has already been activated. So it's easy for us to reactivate it. So theirs was a network like the TLC, their spreading activation network, but it wasn't as rigidly hierarchical. It seems to me the problem with TLC is the fact that it's so hierarchical. So again, we still have units and properties. Birds fly, birds have eggs, birds have beaks. This is kind of like what I was showing you earlier on in the course. But it isn't rigidly hierarchical like TLC is. Is there a hierarchy? Yeah, sure. Birds are mammals. Sorry, birds are mammals. Birds are animals. Uh, and so are fish are animals. Fair enough. But one might actually be closer up to the way we represent it. So like maybe we think of birds being more animal-like than, than fish. So it's closer to the, to the superordinate. So that, that distance itself is going to be important because the longer the distance, the longer the reaction time. Okay? And that, that makes a great deal of intuitive sense, right? So the longer it takes to get from one place to another, and if we were to draw something like this, So if we had birds, okay, they fly. That's going to be pretty close. They have eggs. That's going to be pretty close by. Feathers. Uh, because the only extant animals with feathers are birds. And a little further away, but higher up. <laughs> you know, you see this error bar from the graph? I did that in 1996. Um, so that's a little further away, because it's not as important a characteristic of birds that they breed than it is that they have, even dead birds are still called birds. Right? Yes, right? If I had a dead, 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 dead uh, pigeon here and said, what's this? For after you all get grossed out, somebody say it's a bird. You wouldn't say, well, it's not breathing. I have no idea what it is. But <laughs> <laughs> you know it was a bird. But birds tend to breathe. But it's going to be further away. It's also going to be higher. Notice that where I've got this put, it's up here because other things breathe. Eggs are down here because other things have eggs. Right? So it's not as rigidly hierarchical. And the distance is important. The distance <coughs> is have longer or shorter reaction times. Oh, uh, not a but. <sighs> Distantly related concepts should give longer reaction times. I've been harping on this, haven't I? A canary is a shark, takes like no time at all. Saying no to that, the model does that very quickly. But it should because of the way the model's constructed. Take a long time. You're far away. 
Sharks are way over here. With the fish and the scariness. <laughs> but it doesn't fall into the same category. No. Nope. Nope. So right but, to, but to make the decision, you still have to go all the way to here over to here. And you don't. As we, as we know, we don't do that. The model says that we should, but we don't. But then, that one was so good. Could there be cues or indicators, places that we start on these hierarchical systems? How do you mean? Uh, so, for example, we have a shark and a canary. Yep. Uh, a shark is in the water, the canary is not. Yep. Sharks are dangerous, canaries are, shouldn't be. Um, <laughs> so Unless you're in cold water, that's their diet. So, can we start somewhere along that pathway by using other memories by saying, yep. by associating those things? Yep. And in fact, we probably do. That makes sense. But the model doesn't. The model doesn't, <laughs> the model doesn't do that. That's right. What you're saying is sensible. And in fact, well, assuming we get there by the end of today, when we talk with neural networks, they tend to do stuff like that. They tend to do stuff like that. Oh, geez, it's 20 after 11. We won't get there today. I'm caught up in this stuff. Okay, sorry, guys. Um, so we'll continue talking about uh, propositional network theory next time. Thanks, everyone. Question. Yes. Did you do that next, too? That's just bugging me. That's what?
This podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.